You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Listen closely. This is the sound of November 9th, 1874. It's calm, right? Peaceful, even. It sounds entirely unremarkable, except for one thing. This is Monday morning, November 9th, 1874, in Manhattan. There should be children on their way to school, people on the street headed for work or having coffee on verandas. There should be Carriages and newsies and fruit hawkers and shoeshine boys and police patrols whistling Irish folk tunes and all that other 19th century New York City central casting nonsense you can think of, and instead, practically nothing. No children, very few women, some men out walking cautiously. They should be all right, they figure, as long as they avoid the park. And then there are the other men, strapped with rifles, aiming around every corner, hoping to save a life, be a hero, bag a trophy. So, maybe the sound of November 9th, 1874 is a little bit remarkable after all, huh? Let me turn it over to the New York Herald to explain the circumstances of this bizarrely tense and quiet Manhattan Monday morning. Another Sunday of horror has been added to those already memorable in our city annals. The mad and appalling catastrophe of yesterday is a further illustration of the unforeseen perils to which large communities are exposed. Few of the millions who have visited Central Park and who, passing in through the entrance at East 64th Street, have stopped to examine the collection of birds and animals grouped around the old Arsenal building could by any possibility have foreseen the source of such terrible danger to a whole city as the trivial incident of yesterday afternoon developed. We have a list of 49 killed, of which only 27 bodies have been identified, and it is much to be feared that this large total of fatalities will be much increased with the return of daylight. The list of mutilated, trampled, and injured in various ways must reach nearly 200 persons of all ages, of which, so far as known, about 60 are very serious, and of these latter, three can hardly outlast the night. It was an apparently small cause for a huge and horrible result, but the overturning of a kerosene lamp in a dingy cowshed in Chicago laid the Queen City of the West in ashes. Although General Duray deserves credit for his plan, formed, we are assured, on the instant and carried out so far with effect, we must regret that he was not earlier informed of the terrible event. 
A telegram from police headquarters to the general's residence did not reach him, and thus a valuable hour was lost, as he was first informed of the catastrophe by seeing the mutilated body of the unfortunate sewing girl, Annie Thomas, born on an improvised stretcher to the 31st Precinct Station House, near West 86th Street. He was visiting at the house of a friend, and the passing crowd with the mournful burden on the shoulders of the police attracted the attention of a young daughter of his friends. Her screams brought the entire party to the windows. In an instant, the general was in the street, learning from a hundred tongues the horrible truth in the few words, the wild animals at the park have broken loose. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. And I'm Heather Chrysler. You're probably used to hearing Heather's voice on this show, but this episode is special. Heather is just about to drop her own podcast, and while it's safe to say it is very different from this one, it is also so damn good. It's called Don't Stop for Monkeys, and it's aimed at children. But I'll tell you, if I could listen to it in bed without totally distracting her, I would. It has the perfect feel of a bedtime story, a miniature animal adventure that I want to relax with. And naturally, I want you to, too. So, I wanted to create a companion episode of The Constant to go along with it, which is tough because this show is not an innocent and playful miniature animal adventure. But there is some overlap. See, Don't Stop for Monkeys is the story of a little garden mouse named Thimble, who is in love with a domestic mouse named Chickpea, who lives in the house next to the garden. When Chickpea disappears, Thimble embarks on an epic journey to find her and bring her home. The titular event of Don't Stop for Monkeys is a massive animal jailbreak, and that got me thinking about November 8th, 1874, the day the animals escaped from the Central Park Zoo. So, with a little help from Heather, I give you today's episode, Zoo Story. Before we go any further, let's be clear about something. The Central Park Zoo escape? It never happened. It was a hoax. On November 9th, 1874, the New York Herald, the most widely read paper in the world at the moment, published the story with the following dozen or so headlines. Awful calamity. The wild animals broken loose from Central Park. Terrible scenes of mutilation. A shocking Sabbath carnival of death. Savage brutes at large. Awful combats between the beasts and the citizens. The killed and wounded. General DeRay's magnificent police tactics. Bravery and panic. How the catastrophe was brought about. Affrighting incidents. Proclamation by the mayor. Governor Dix shoots the Bengal tiger in the street. Consternation in the city. It was published on the front page. Well, no, not quite. Actually, the first two pages were all ads, so it was really on the third page, but effectively the third page was the front page of the Herald. The story ran more than 10,000 words, and before we get into who wrote it and why, I'm going to present to you an abridged version of the story. It is still quite long, and despite my efforts to soften it, still contains a lot of violence done by and towards animals, so let that be a warning. But also remember, it is all 100% fake. No animals were harmed in the making either of this episode or the episode upon which this episode is made. In fact, 
The real awful calamity was not the Herald story, but what happened once people read it. With that, let's get back to the article. We'll pick it up at the phony mayoral proclamation. A proclamation. Mayor's office, Sunday night, November 8th, 1874. All citizens, except members of the National Guard, are enjoined to keep within their houses or residences until the wild animals now at large are captured or killed. Notice of the release from this order will be spread by the firing of cannons in City Hall Park, Thompson Square, Madison Square, The Round, and at Macomb's Dam Bridge. Obedience to this order will secure a speedy end to the state of siege occasioned by the calamity of this evening. An account will be opened at the City Hall of the City of New York for contributions to the sufferers. The The Catastrophe The location of the zoological collection in the park is well known to most New Yorkers. If you enter the menagerie from Fifth Avenue, you will find on either hand, running parallel to the street, the houses where the herbivorous beasts were domiciled. In former times, several bears from the northern regions occupied the right-hand corner, where a few beautiful zebras lately gladdened the eye. The visitor, by making a short circuit of the large building known in times gone by as the Arsenal, found himself in front of a handsome wooden structure, one story high, where the principal wild animals resided. On the inside of the garden, the stately giraffe occupied a somewhat large enclosure, and adjacent were a number of pelicans, intermingled with several specimens of the ostrich tribe. The bears were in isolated cages on the Greens Ward, near the common pedestrian route from the Fifth Avenue entrance. In the quadrangle nearest to Fifth Avenue were the bison, the sacred bull, the zebras, the young elephant, the capybara, and the valuable monkey collection. Such was the scene before the terrible events of yesterday. As everyone knows, the Central Park on Sunday is the popular resort of all classes. The rich and fashionable in their carriages, and the poor and humble on foot alike sally forth to enjoy its beauties. It is safe to say that at least 20,000 people filled the various walks, drives, and avenues yesterday. It would be vain of the writer to presume himself capable of picturing the harrowing scenes of which he was a distressed and involuntary spectator. But let me endeavor to describe the fearful scenes with some attempt at order. My head is so confused and my nerves so unstrung with the fearful scenes through which I have passed that I confess I am hardly equal to picturing them. First ominous symptoms. The writer stood within a hundred yards of the menagerie when the first ominous symptoms of the approaching catastrophe were heard. The doors of the main structure, wherein the principal wild animals were confined, were closed at five o'clock. Hundreds of people were still lingering in the vicinity. It was a calm, peaceful, and pleasing scene in the early hours of the afternoon. Children ran about from cage to cage in the perfect fullness of delight. A stream of people released from the cares and labors of the week wandered through the grounds, pausing here to admire the beautiful zebras and stopping there to laugh over the amusing antics of the monkeys. The rhinoceros appeared the picture of stupid amiability. The Numidian lion wore a look of the grossest indolence. The Bengal tiger seemed as harmless as a prostrate forest tree. The bears invited a caressing acquaintance. The elephant, eating biscuits from the fingers of a little child, suggested an extreme condition of tameness and docility. In all the rest, the spirit of the day appeared to dwell. If you enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away? 
or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never ever existed, or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder. Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast, podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out. The Origin of the Awful Calamity It is now well authenticated that Chris Anderson, the keeper, one of whose charges was Pete the Rhinoceros, was seen to poke his cane through the bars at the Great Beast. He had a fashion, it appears, of teasing the animals, although he was often known to eject persons from the building for similar practices. Anderson paid no attention to the warnings of his fellow keepers, and it is thought a heedless thrust must have entered the eye of the rhinoceros. A number of boys who were peering in through the windows on the north side of the building attracted the attention of the writer by their cries. Look, he's breaking out! There was a crashing herd within, and the boys were seen to flee precipitately. I rushed to the window, drawn by a curiosity which was irresistible. A keeper was standing in the middle of the open space, apparently spellbound. Another was standing further down, grasping a crowbar, his gaze directed toward the pen of the rhinoceros. The short, angry, squeaking cry of the rhinoceros, like sudden blasts on a fish horn, were heard amid the sound of snapping bars and crashing planks. It at once struck me that the huge animal was breaking down the walls of his pen in the endeavor doubtless to reach his tormentor. The keeper, afterward found to be Anderson, now rushed forward and struck the animal. We could not see whether his blows reached the rhinoceros or not, but their effect was soon told. A crash which shook the building followed, and the front of the pen fell outward, and the horrid, misshapen mass of Pete the rhinoceros rushed out, his double-horned head close to the ground. Anderson made a spring sideways to evade the monster's onslaught, but he was too close to the animal for the latter, swinging his unwieldy body toward him, knocked him down with a touch of his shoulder, and an instant later had trampled him out of recognition. Backing down from the mangled body with a swiftness almost incredible from his bulk, the rhinoceros plunged his horrid horn into the dead keeper, dashing the last possible spark of life out against the walls of one of the pens which likewise gave way. All this tragedy transpired in an instant. Horror-stricken, I tried to push my way from the window, but the crowd was now dense behind me and I could not stir. I cried, For God's sake, let someone run to the police station for help! I struggled to get out, putting my hands against the window and my feet below it and pushing with all my might, and a cursed curiosity in the crowd, who were only vaguely conscious of what was transpiring, made my efforts useless. When I looked in through the window again, the destruction at the further end had increased, the rhinoceros breaking open the dens of the animals on the left-hand side. The Keeper, Highland, whom I had first seen standing spellbound, was advancing, a navy revolver in his hand, towards the enraged rhinoceros. The animal saw him, turned, and made for him in an instant. He sprang aside and fired. The ball hit the rhinoceros on the left shoulder, but it can scarcely have more than hurt him a little, and as he turned with a whiff, 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 snort, his head down towards the keeper. The latter, with cat-like agility, retreated towards the lions and tigers' cages, evidently making for the space between them, but too late. The horrid horn impaled him against the corner cage, killing him instantly, tearing the cage to pieces, and releasing the panther 
who landed in the middle of the open space with a spring. The cries of all the animals were now joined in horrid chorus by the loud and long sustained roar of the lion and lioness, the tigers, and all the wild beasts. The wild animals are loose, I yelled, and the savage chorus within bore out my words. The crowd fled in all directions. I ran to the police station in the arsenal building and found that the sergeant on duty was dozing quietly. I shook him up, told him in a few words what was the matter, and ran round the space in front of the arsenal. There I found Keeper Miller talking to the policeman, who was just coming off duty. Miller laughed at my story. The sergeant now came running out in search of the policeman. Anderson and Highland are killed, said he to Miller. Why don't you stir yourself? Miller is a tall, stalwart man, and it is but just to say that from the moment the sergeant spoke, he sprang into action. He rushed into the keeper's room and grasped a 16-shooter rifle, which is kept loaded for such emergencies, and ran out to the rear of the arsenal to the window the crowd had just deserted. What he saw evidently appalled him. From his own lips, I have learned what he saw. He said, An attentive glance through the window revealed the fact that A huge rhinoceros had broken loose. He had apparently made no more of the massive barrier that enclosed him than of a sheet of pasteboard. The panther was crouched over Highland's body, gnawing horribly at its head. I saw the rhinoceros plunge blindly forward against the double tier of cages where the black and spotted leopards, the striped hyena, the prairie wolf, the puma, and the jaguar were lying. Judging from the condition of the cages, the onset of the powerful and infuriated rhinoceros must have been tremendous. In some cases, the bars were only bent to an elbow, but as a rule, they snapped asunder like kindling wood before the smashing weight brought against them. The release of the animals, mentioned, angered still more the lions and tigers and all the rest within the building. The rhinoceros, in the meantime, was busy in the work of destruction. In a few moments more, he had broken down the pens of the wild swine, the manatee, the two-toed sloth, and the pair of kangaroos. Just then, too, Lincoln, the Numidian lion, escaped from his cage. Hardly had Lincoln the lion bounded into the center aisle of the building when the three cages containing the black and spotted leopards, the tiger and tigresses, the black wolf, and the striped and spotted hyenas were sprung open by an overpowering charge from the now desperate rhinoceros. A great fight ensued over, over the, the body, body of poor brave Highland. Where Highland lay, the lioness, the panther, the puma, and presently the Bengal tiger were rolling over and over, striking at each other with their mighty paws. Oddly enough, while the fight was going on, I could not help looking at Lincoln, the lion, who was standing behind them, pawing the ground, roaring and lashing his sides with his tail, every muscle in uneasy tension. All of a sudden, I had a flash. My, My God, God, he's, he's looking, looking at, at me. me, I said to myself. I saw him crouch. I turned and ran. My God, I had no idea there was anybody near me. Miller had not been a minute and a half at the window when I saw him run towards me, shouting at the top of his lungs, They're coming. They're all loose. Anderson, frightened by the eye of the lion, ran precipitately toward the arsenal. There were perhaps a dozen persons near the window. He had only sped a few paces when, with a terrific roar, Lincoln, Lincoln the, the lion, lion came, came crashing through the glass. glass. I saw a young man fall from a blow of the awful paw and another crushed to earth beneath the beast's weight. Planting his paws upon one of the bodies, he filled the air with a fearful rumble of his roar. I started to run, but Miller called on me to stop. I turned and saw him kneel down deliberately and take aim. There was a good chance for a shot as the lion stood almost facing him. He had hit him, 
but the wound was far from fatal. The bellowings were renewed, his mane erect, his tail switching his sides, while he pawed the earth and swung his huge head from side to side. Drawn by the report of the rifle and the roaring of the beasts, crowds of people were entering the enclosure from the 64th Street entrance. I saw that already a number of park police, police armed, armed with, with revolvers, revolvers and citizens with rifles were on the ground. I had no weapon and so ran down the incline by the refreshment stand towards 5th Avenue, and almost on my heels, as it were, came the Numidian lion with a series of bounds. So sudden, fierce, and powerful was the leap he made into the midst of the storming party that he paralyzed the coolest calculations and scattered half a hundred armed and unarmed men like chaff before the wind. Springing in the air over the stopped form of Policeman Murray, who ducked in time to save himself from possible death, Lincoln landed in a fast, widening circle of fear-stricken people. Of fainting women, screaming children, and terrified men, Lincoln paused for perhaps a second, lashing himself with his tail and glaring horribly around him. On the ground before him were two young men who had tripped and fallen in the precipitate retreat from between the building. They were struggling fast to rise and had nearly succeeded when Lincoln, with another awful roar that echoed all over the park, pounced upon the nearest and, with one stroke of his forepaw, tore clothes and flesh to pieces. A shout of horror went up. I was about to escape by rushing past the house where the wild animals were caged when what I had feared most came to pass. The rhinoceros, in his infuriated career, had at last found the gate and crashed through it. A storming party, which had been formed by Colonel Conlin of keepers, citizens, and police near the 59th Street entrance, and which was powerfully aided by the arrival of a platoon from the 19th Precinct under Captain Gunner and Mr. Hunt of 93rd Street, was within a hundred yards of the building when the rhinoceros emerged, giving his short, vicious cry. His appearance was the signal for a misdirected volley, which, of course, did little or no execution on his thick, tough hide and double-horn protected proboscis. It confused him momentarily, however, for he turned and re-entered the building on a sort of ambling trot. Misled by this retreat, a cheer went up from the firing party, and they rushed forward, Colonel Conklin leading to secure the door. When the party were within a dozen feet of the door, the puma sprung through the shattered portal into their midst, overthrowing several doubtless injuring more. Almost on the heels of the puma came the black and spotted leopard, followed by the jaguar, the African lioness, and the tiger. The latter came forth with a slow and stealthy tread. Archambeau, one of the keepers, had the temerity to try and lasso the beast, knowing that there was none more dangerous and bloodthirsty in the whole collection. The tiger saw the object of the keeper, and without a moment's warning sprung fifteen feet into the air and caught Archambeau by the right shoulder. The two went down together, the tiger on top. Instant preparations were made to save the poor fellow, when, unfortunately, the rhinoceros came lumbering at a half-trot out of the entrance and drove the rescuing party from their purpose, and at the same time planted one of his enormous feet on the prostrate Archambeau and squeezed the breath from his body. The storming party was for the moment completely disorganized. The animals were running in various directions, and the attacking forces and the curious spectators were fleeing in every direction, scaling rocks, climbing trees, falling in their flight, and a case is reported of a citizen stabbed at this moment by an Italian over a quarrel as to which should ascend the first tree. The lion had escaped the bullets of the firing party in the front enclosure, or rather, being maddened to further desperation by them, 
careened wildly through the Fifth Avenue entrance and was followed shortly after by the Bengal Tiger. Over 100 shots were fired at the rhinoceros in vain. His sides appeared to be covered with slabs of wrought iron. Shoot him in the eye, was the general cry, but no one was lucky enough, as all were nervous with fright to strike that particular organ. A long-reaching crowbar, however, struck him in a sensitive spot under the jaw, not with the effect of checking his headlong career, but only to drive him onwards to worse, worse deeds, deeds than, than ever. ever. In the same half-trot with which he issued from his quarters and swaying like a ship at sea, he struck over to the cages near Fifth Avenue. All the cages tumbled to pieces, and the liberated elephant joined forces with the rhinoceros. The joint attack of the weaker animals, such as the camel, the zebras, the sacred bull, and the llama, was simply irresistible. One of the mild-eyed zebras escaped into the park and ran towards 8th Avenue. He is reported to have badly bitten and kicked a number of daring boys who endeavored to effect his capture, and is still at large. The rhinoceros, the parent of all the destruction, made away towards the mall when... The elephant had been lassoed. By the hind leg, a huge log being tied to the end of a stout rope with which the leg was lariated so as to impede his progress, while other parties with ropes similarly hampered the other legs until they were able to throw him on his side and effectively hobble him so that he could not rise. They were then about to shoot him at point-blank range when the strange sight was presented of the elephant's keeper with streaming eyes and outstretched arms planting himself between the pointed and cocked rifles of the angry crowd who had seen the deaths and mutilations and the prostrate beast, whose trumpetings of defiance were still ringing on the ear. The keeper would not move, and with many curses, the great brute's life was saved. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. The Rhinoceros Escaped Towards the Mall here he attacked a party of young girls, killing the sewing girl, Annie Thomas, and frightening the others terribly. The beast left the park at one of the upper 8th Avenue entrances. In this neighborhood, he overthrew a shanty on the rocks, which fell before him like a house of cards. The wretched inmates were at supper, and the falling planks took fire. All the family escaped, except a child in the cradle, which was burned to a crisp. He must have been nearly spent with his terrible efforts, but continued on towards the North River. A fortunate accident put an end to his career. It was now very dark, and he was seen to fall into a sewer excavation on the boulevard, 15 feet deep. The park, from end to end, is marked with injury, and in its artificial forests the wild beasts lurk, to pounce at any moment on the unwary pedestrian. The subsequent fight between 
the, the lion, lion and, and tiger, tiger when they met on the open space at 59th Street outside the park wall in the presence of a thousand terrified spectators was the great combat of the day. The lion tore away at one bite half the tiger's flanks, while the latter, with characteristic ferocity, buried his teeth in the lion's neck until the king of beasts howled with the keenest anguish. Now it was the lion underneath and the tiger on top. The next moment, positions were reversed. Blood covered the avenue. And off in the distance, the awestruck spectators looked on in breathless fear. Finally, the two sanguinary brutes rushed from each other as a bullet from the rifle of General Wingate, who came promptly on the ground, whistled between their ears. Many other gentlemen came rushing to the scene in the meantime, but they were all a trifle nervous from running, and the beasts escaped on their raid downtown, where, as everybody knows by this, they had a bloody and fearful carnival. The news of the proceedings in the park and the terror excited throughout the city at the prospect of having a visit from the wild animals at the domestic fireside drew an immense number of sporting men and Yorkville fast boys and rowdies in the direction of the menagerie. There was dangerous sport enough for everybody as far as hunting down the fugitives went. They penetrated everywhere. The, the Bengal, Bengal tiger. tiger, having counted up a score of victims, surrendered his life to the trusty rifle of our aged governor, John A. Dix, who shot him as he rounded Madison Avenue and 34th Street. This was an extremely fortunate occurrence. A minute after the death of the tiger, Archbishop McCloskey's carriage drove up. A fright or injury to the horses by the ferocious beast might have ended the career of the aged prelate. Hearty congratulations were exchanged between the governor and archbishop. Fright on Fifth Avenue. A number of excited people rushed down Fifth Avenue, shouting as they ran. It caused a general stampede of the fashionables, who ran in various directions down side streets and into the churches. The Honorable Richard Shell, who at first believed the report of the breaking loose to be a cruel hoax, told one of our reporters that the rapidity with which the avenue cleared beggared description. The excited, shouting party seemed to sweep the avenue before them. Mr. Shell proceeded to state that he turned and walked up the avenue but met no one for three quarters of a mile. As he neared the park, however, he heard a number of shots fired. He, in turn, became excited and commenced running towards the arsenal. On his way, he was met by a party bearing, bearing a, a dead, dead body, body, that of a youth, fearfully disfigured about the head and face. A terrifying roar was heard behind them when the party let the body fall and ran precipitately. Mr. Shell ran too and jumped in among some shrubs off the main road. Up the road, he saw some animal of the tiger species come with a light swift movement. The beast was evidently following the blood trail, for he went straight up to the abandoned corpse, and after striking one paw upon the breast and touching it with his head as if smelling, he gave forth a series of horrible howls. I felt my blood run cold said Mr. Shell. The animal first referred to by Mr. Shell is doubtless the one that entered, entered the, the Church, Church of St. Thomas, Thomas at the corner of West 53rd Street, causing such a deplorable panic, with injuries to many. A party carrying one of the wounded down 5th Avenue to St. Luke's Hospital at 54th Street was tracked by him. Just as the bearers neared the corner, a deep bass growl was heard behind them, and losing their presence of mind, they ran down the avenue and passed the hospital. Descrying the church a little ahead, they hurried toward it and entered the edifice. The church door must have been left open, for a minute after, the animal, cougar, some say, panther, others, came stealthily with his head down to the blood trail and growling gutturally, 
Men and women rushed in all directions away from the beast, who sprang upon the shoulders of an aged lady. Burying his fangs in her neck. And carrying her to the ground. Someone ran to the Windsor Hotel for assistance, and one of the guests ran with a loaded rifle to the church. The beast was in the middle aisle, sitting crouched above the form of his victim, when a tall, fair man with a rifle in his hands entered. Without a moment's hesitation, he brought the weapon to his shoulder and fired. The beast tumbled over, and the rifleman ran up and struck him over the head, driving the hammer through the brute skull. When the aged victim was examined, life was found to be extinct. An inquiry at the hotel as to the name of the rifleman elicited the single word, Rigby. In several parts of the city, the greatest danger resulted from people firing rifles and pistols from windows. There is no instance reported of any of the animals having been hit, while it is believed many citizens were struck by the missiles. One policeman, Officer Lanigan of the 7th Precinct, was wounded in the foot near Grand Street by a shot from a window during the chase after the striped hyena. This cowardly brute was finally killed by a bartender armed only with a club. He was treated as a second Samson by the entire neighborhood. The ferry boat carnage. Perhaps the most deplorable of all the incidents of the terrible evening was that which took place on the ferry boat on the 23rd Street line, North River. Several of the animals made their way down Fifth Avenue. Among them was one of large size, almost the only description now attainable. It is thought to have been one of the tigers, but its passage along West 23rd Street appears to have been unnoticed in the general amazement. At any rate, just as the gatekeeper of the 23rd Street Ferry was closing the gates, he saw a fierce animal bound past him and rush onto the ferry boat. Some horses attached to light wagons were seen to rear and show every sign of terror, and then rush forward, into the river, carrying their human loads with them. Several people were mangled by the ferocious brute in a very few minutes. The boat had just begun moving as the beast leaped on board. When the pilot saw the horses and wagons going overboard, the boat was not quite clear of the dock. He immediately rung to reverse the engines. Numbers were seen to plunge overboard to escape the beast, which at last sprung in the water after a young man. The wonderful escape of Larry Jerome is an incident of breathless interest. Overborne by the crowd, he was forced into the river, and although a heavily built man, is a splendid swimmer. Striking out for shore, he touched against a female who appeared to have given herself up to death. He piloted her to the piles near the dock, and both were rescued by the fast-gathering crowd. The hospital horrors. In Bellevue Hospital, many touching sights were seen. The doctors were kept busy dressing the fearful wounds, and the cries of the unfortunates in the accident ward were most painful to hear. It was necessary to perform a number of amputations instantly. One young girl is said to have died under the knife. Few of the wounded were visited by their families last night, but the ministers of the gospel of all denominations took their places by the bedsides of the unfortunates. Bishop Potter, Reverend Mr. Morgan Dix, Reverend Mr. Armitage of the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church, and Fathers Fairley and McGlynn were seen moving among the sufferers, ministering to the souls of the suffering and the dying. Of the number actually killed, it will be impossible to tell for some days. Of those wounded, no full list can be ascertained. The charge of the savage beasts was the most unexampled in the history of cities. They tore through the leading thoroughfares with all the freedom they might have enjoyed in their native wilds. Animals at large. The following animals are at large in various parts of the Central Park and city, and of course are extremely dangerous. The cheetah, the manatee, the cape buffalo, the panther, the opossum, not dangerous. 
the puma lion, a very savage animal, destroyed most of the deer in the northern enclosure and bit a large piece out of the shoulder of Henderson, the policeman, supposed also to have killed the nursery girl discovered in the carousel. Three snakes escaped and are believed to be hid away in the grass and shrubbery near the casino. More than a dozen monkeys are playing truant through the park and are not to be depended upon when they become hungry. The Black Leopard, whose fight in the building with the Bengal Tiger disabled him considerably, is limping about the upper end of the park. The polar bear that killed the two keepers, Ryan and Murphy, is said to have been shot by recorder Hackett near the upper reservoir. There is a sharp lookout for the Black Wolf. He escaped into the city, but looks so much like a Dutchman's dog, he may evade detection until he has committed some lamentable tragedy. Five or six bald-headed eagles escaped and many valuable tropical birds. The prairie wolf is not to be found and the surrogate is also missing and no tidings have been received of the brown Kodamundi. National Guard Precautions General Shaler deserves credit for having promptly issued to turn out the National Guard as the danger from the wild and savage animals at large in all the thoroughfares proved too much for the police. The scene at the Fifth Avenue Hotel where the Malayan taper that killed the two policemen burst in among the mob of gentlemen standing in the portico can never be forgotten. General Butler, who had come on in the morning, was in conversation with General Gilmore and received a bite in the calf of the leg. Major Bundy of the Mail and Mr. Stone of the Journal of Commerce assisted to calm Jay Jones, the button manufacturer, who was thrown into paroxysm by the appearance of the animals. Secretary Robeson and Alderman Vance were thrown violently against a pile of baggage. The buffalo overturned Earl Roseberry's carriage in front of the Brevort and subsequently ran into another carriage containing Moses Hans of 41st Street. It would be impossible at this late hour to describe the numberless scenes of dismay and disaster. The hospitals are full of wounded. There are 15 bodies at the morgue and several in the various precincts. A sentiment of horror pervades the community. The moral of the whole. Wait a second, no. If anybody's going to deliver the moral of the whole, it's going to be me, not the New York Herald. So, let's take a quick break, listen to the trailer for Don't Stop for Monkeys, and then we can begin making our way towards whatever semblance of a moral this story might provide. Coming soon to Ears Near You, the audio adventure and podcast for young audiences, Don't Stop for Monkeys. A story about how the smallest of us can be the most adventurous of us. Now is the time to be a very brave little mouse. Thimble the mouse lives happily in the garden behind the Todd house, but is deeply in love with Chickpea, the domestic mouse who lives in a cage in the breakfast nook. I want to go out and play in the garden with you. I will show you all the flowers in the garden. One day, when Thimble finds Chickpea and her cage have disappeared, he must embark on an enormous journey to find her. Currently, 14 mice are being tested with the drug some doctors are calling miraculous. What is a lab? I don't know. It's up to Thimble to rescue Chickpea with the help of his brother Ladle. Thimble! An entire company of garden frogs. Thimble is not a member of our company, it's true. But today, I propose we think of the whole of the garden as our company. For today, there is a creature in the garden who needs our help. Ribbit! And all the alarming and frightening creatures he meets. Welcome to the primate exhibit. Where are you going, little mouse? I came here to rescue someone I love. A lunch with an agenda. All while causing great upset to Mr. Todd. 
Oh, hello. What the blazes? Have all the animals gone mad today? The first episode of Don't Stop for Monkeys is dropping March 29th, 2021. Remember to subscribe. Hello, mouse. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and gets you matched with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since it's available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. The New York Herald was the most important and widely read newspaper in New York City, the United States, and possibly even the world at the time it published the zoo hoax. And by all accounts, the story had a dramatic and chilling effect on the public that Monday morning. I need to put in a little caveat here, though, and say that I am generally pretty skeptical of these sorts of narratives. We've tackled quite a few media hoax panic stories over the years, from the War of the Worlds, to the bathtub hoax, to the Great Wall of China hoax, to the Worcester airship sightings, to the Pennsylvania baldness epidemic, and each and every time it turns out that the story of the supposed panic is nearly as ginned up as the story that supposedly caused it. In the case of the zoo escape, though, I can find no counterfactual evidence suggesting that the public reaction was less than advertised. I'm still a bit suspicious, since most of the sources describing the panic were either written years after the event, or else were typed up in editorials and opinion pieces rather than news items. Usually, those editorials and opinion pieces had a clear aim, besmirching the New York Herald, and its sensational publisher, James Gordon Bennett Jr. James Gordon Bennett Jr. was, incredibly, the son of James Gordon Bennett Senior, huh, the Scottish immigrant who had founded the Herald in 1835. Unlike a lot of immigrant tales, Jimmy Senior's wasn't so much a rags-to-riches story as a riches-to-holy-shit-riches story. His family back in Northeast Scotland was well enough to do, but by the time he turned over the Herald to his son in 1867, the Bennets were the third richest family in America, just behind the Astors and the Vanderbilts. Jimmy Jr. lived the highest of high lifes the mid-19th century could afford. He had a number of opulent mansions, both in the U.S., U.K., and Europe, and a number of opulent private train cars and yachts to take him between them. 
one of his yachts, the Lizestrada, even held a cow in a fan-cooled stall, which was kept on board to make sure Master Bennett had fresh milk daily. He single-handedly established polo and tennis in the United States, won the first transoceanic yacht race, sponsored the first British automobile race, established the world's oldest hot air balloon race, and had the exact mustache you're currently imagining. He was also known, both professionally and personally, as an outrageous wildcard. So much so, in fact, that his name became a slang phrase in the United Kingdom, where, upon seeing something unbelievable, one could exclaim, Gordon Bennett! He came to the UK in 1877, after a series of high-profile romantic kerfuffles in the States proved too embarrassing for the family. He'd spent a long while in a scandalously casual relationship with a burlesque dancer named Pauline Markham up until he met Caroline May, a Baltimore debutante light in 1875. Bennett and May's courtship shocked Newport High Society because she was sometimes seen riding in the box seat of his coach with him when they went driving, and if that was enough to make the Astors drop their monocles, they were really in for a treat. In 1876, the two announced their engagement, and almost immediately, Bennett began to think twice. He didn't care much for May's family, who seemed to come crawling out of the woodwork and onto his estate, uncles and cousins and brothers, all looking for a rub of his fortune. In the early hours of New Year's Day, 1877, James Gordon Bennett Jr. got dead drunk and piled into a sleigh, crisscrossing Newport until he arrived at the May estate. There, either in a desperate bid to end the engagement, or actually out of pure blind inebriation, Bennett took down a few more glasses of hot punch and proceeded to drop trow and piss straight into, depending on the version you believe, either the family fireplace or the family grand piano. Caroline's brother took him by the arm and threw him bodily out of the house, and Bennett spent the next two days lying low. Then he paid a visit to the Union Club in New York to see whether he had gotten himself kicked out of high society or not. He was happy to find that the gentlemen there were willing to ignore his indiscretion and was just about convinced he'd suffered no consequences for his behavior when in walked Fred May, Caroline's father, who grabbed a horsewhip and began beating him with it in the street. A few days later, Fred and James met at the old dueling ground at the border of Virginia and Maryland, took their paces, turned, and fired. Both of them aimed and both of them missed, and anticlimactically, they all shared a carriage back to a hotel in Dover. It's considered the last American duel ever fought, such that it was. After that, Bennett took a leave of absence to Paris and London, and supposedly had a suit of male armor made to wear under his clothes for fear that Fred May would find and shoot him there. There are a good many other outrageous stories besides his naked car ride from Rhode Island to Central Park, his plan for a 200-foot-tall owl-shaped mausoleum in Midtown, uh, the time he was kicked out of Newport's reading room for daring a friend to ride his horse straight through it, and then, out of spite that they ejected him, he built a casino next door. All of that and more is quite aside from his role as publisher at the Herald, where he favored a variety of journalism so yellow you could fill the May family's grand piano with it. In his obit, the New York Tribune described how he had once demanded that the paper come up with a good story for the next day, 
The city editor told Bennett that there was no good story to print, to which Bennett replied, then send a reporter out and have him kill somebody. In this way, he took after his father, who in 1836 had printed a promise of reward to any woman who, quote, will set a trap for a Presbyterian parson and catch one of them in flagrante delicto. <laughs> Why? Why bother the Presbyterians? <laughs> I don't know. But Junior's sense of sensation far exceeded dear old dad's. In 1869, he had sent Henry Morton Stanley to find Dr. David Livingston with the world-famous Dr. Livingston, I presume, story, a Herald exclusive. He also organized and financed the journey of the USS Jeanette to the North Pole in search of the non-existent open polar sea, which we talked about briefly last year in The Cold Hard Truth. The ship was trapped in the ice, crushed, and the crew spent the next two years wandering out on the ice. Well, the small number of them that survived, at least. Which is all to say that when New Yorkers began to piece together that they'd been had on November 9th, 1874, they had a pretty good idea of who to blame. Strictly speaking, the Herald hadn't lied at all. The zoo story ended, at long last, with this paragraph. The moral of the whole. Of course, the entire story given above is a pure fabrication. Not one word of it is true. Not a single act or incident described has taken place. It is a huge hoax, a wild romance, or whatever other epithet of utter untrustworthiness our readers may choose to apply to it. It is simply a fancy picture which crowded upon the mind of the writer a few days ago while he was gazing through the iron bars of the cages of the wild animals in the menagerie at Central Park. Yet as each of its horrid but perfectly natural sequences impressed themselves upon his mind, the question presented itself. How is New York prepared to meet such a catastrophe? How easily could it occur any day of the week? How much, let the citizens ponder, depends upon the indiscretion of even one of the keepers. A little oversight, a trifling imprudence might lead to the actual happening of all, and even worse than has been pictured. From causes quite as insignificant, the greatest calamities of history have sprung. Horror, devastation, and widespread slaughter of human beings have had small mishaps for parents time and again. So, anybody who made it to the end would have known what was going on. But holy crap, it was a long way to go. The version of the story presented in the first act of this episode was drastically shortened. Not to mention that to get through the full print edition not only required one to take all that time, but also to choose at every gory avenue to keep reading rather than seek shelter or arms. And few enough seem to have made that choice. Instead, mothers kept their children home from school, and those kids who did arrive at school found that their teachers had not and had to walk back home through the lion-prowled streets. Macho men made their armed way out onto the New York City boulevards to protect their families, prove their bravery, or bag a good trophy. Governor Dix grabbed his gun and mounted his horse, believing the story, even though he himself had been featured as a character in it, having supposedly shot the Bengal tiger before it could kill the archbishop. Police stations were overrun with angry residents and angry reporters. The citizens wanted to know what the cops were doing about the wild beasts still on the loose. The reporters wanted to know what the hell the cops were doing, giving the Herald the exclusive story. When they realized the whole thing was a hoodwink, which was at least after war reporter George Hosmer ran outside dual-wielding two Colt revolvers and screaming, Well, here I am! They were pissed. 
and they understandably pointed their opprobrium at the Herald and at the man they knew to be the architect of the con, James Gordon Bennett Jr. The New York Tribune published a letter from someone calling herself only mother, which read, in part, I have never suffered so intently as I did on glancing at the cruel hoax. Can't something be done to punish properly or at least rebuke such trifling with the public? The Galveston Daily News suggested that the Herald should bribe a zookeeper to release a lion now and again to keep it from being seen as the pack of lies it was. But it's really the New York Times that most went to town on the Herald. Not only did one city editor for the Times supposedly try to get the district attorney to file charges against its rival for incitement, but the paper ran angry missive after angry missive about the hoax. A few choice quotes from the old gray lady for you. A violation not only of journalistic propriety and a due respect for the public, but also of common decency and humanity. It is a striking commentary on the curious position which is held by the Herald that this disgusting and brutal jest is not likely to lower it much in the estimation of the public. It appears that there may sometimes be an advantage to having no character to lose, for when whatever offenses one may commit, people only shake their heads and ask what else was to be expected. The Times also fired a couple of broadsides straight at Bennett. No such carefully prepared story could appear without the consent of the proprietor or editor, supposing that this strange newspaper has an editor, which seems rather a violent stretch of the imagination. If charming sketches of dead children and dying old ladies do not move the reader to roars of laughter, his sense of fun must be somewhat different from that with which the proprietor or editor of the New York Herald has been endowed. There are two things about that attack which proved incorrect. First of all, apparently the public did think the story was funny. After the initial shock and fear wore off, most of New York City seems to have decided that the hoax was good fun, and according to the Herald's editor, they not only failed to lose a single subscriber on account of it, but even gained some. The second thing that was incorrect was the target. Because James Gordon Bennett Jr. was not responsible for the zoo escape hoax. The architect of the fraud finally came forward in 1893. Thomas T.B. Connery, then editor at the Herald, stepped up in an article for Harper's Weekly. According to Connery, the zoo story had never been meant to scare or agitate anyone at all. Instead, the supposed moral of the story, tacked on at the very end, was in fact the moral he'd been looking to send. Connery wrote that when he was helming the Herald, he would walk most days to the office through Central Park, and more often than not would stop on his way to view both the animals and the animal viewers. One morning, he happened to be at the menagerie to see a leopard who was being transferred from carriage to cage. The carriage was covered and built to line up with the cage gate so that a sort of seal would be formed and the animal could be driven from one to the other. But while Connery was watching, the carriage slipped away a tiny bit from the cage and the leopard grasped the opportunity wending its way through the space between them to freedom. Connery's eyes darted around as he realized the predator was suddenly at liberty to strike any one of the hundreds of pedestrians padding cluelessly around it. The leopard did not attack, because of course it didn't, and before it could get away, the keepers managed to wrangle it back safely into the cage. But the incident deeply frightened Connery, and he began to think about how easy it would be for something to go much more terribly wrong in the park. The cages at the Central Park Menagerie were old and flimsy. Even the New York Times, in the midst of its anger at the Herald, admitted that, and Connery thought that something needed to be done 
before a more tragic incident than the one he had witnessed transpired. So he began working up an editorial, tisking the keepers about their lax behavior, in hopes he could scold them into being more careful and train the public eye a little more actively on their operations. But what was the point, he wondered. Sure, maybe for a few weeks the people would keep a closer eye on the zoo and the employees would make a show of their prudence, but eventually they'd all forget and everything would go back to as it was, until the day a short-tempered keeper goaded the rhinoceros into disaster or something. Well, that was the idea. A little hoax to stick more firmly in the public memory and affect real, lasting change. He typed up the headlines, a basic outline, and assigned a couple of his reporters to fill in the details. When the piece was completed, T.B. Connery was pleased with it and thought it would serve its purpose. Yes, it was a bit long. He admitted that maybe he had become too enamored by his own idea to show some editorial sense, but he still believed that the joke of the hoax and the moral of the article would ring clear. He probably should have suspected otherwise when he passed the story off to Bennett and his boss returned it without a single note or punch-up. If Joseph Gordon Bennett Jr., the wild Commodore of New York, didn't think the story needed to be bawdier, it was probably already more than bawdy enough. But T.B. Connery says it never occurred to him that anyone would take the story seriously, and he fully exonerated Bennett. The paper went to press late Sunday night, and Connery headed home for a good night's sleep. It was only in the morning that he began to suspect things had gone awry. He was awoken by one of his daughters, who ran up to the bed carrying a copy of the Herald and yelling, Oh, Papa, what a dreadful thing. Haven't you read it? Didn't you know of it last night before you came home? She had tears in her wide eyes. When he got downstairs for breakfast, he discovered that his wife had already taken steps to keep their children home from school, and their servants were refusing to go outside to purchase groceries. Every face was unusually pale, he wrote. Don't you see it's all a joke? he asked. Read the end of the article. Assuming his own household to be an outlier, he headed off for a shave, where the other waiting men were explaining to the barber and his current client the range of the massacre and the still uncaptured beasts left padding about Midtown. The man in the chair was so frightened that before Connery could say anything, he sprung out of the barber's chair and ran out of the building, leaving his hat and coat behind. As he walked from the barber to his office, Connery heard people on the street discussing the animals still on the loose and newsboys yelling, Extry, extry, escape of the wild beasts, great loss of life. Now fairly alarmed at his own actions, Connery forwent his normal walk through the park, grabbed a cab, and made his way straight to the Herald. There, he discovered that police superintendent Walling had put out orders to the whole NYPD force to search out and destroy the errant animals. Rear Admiral Daniel Lawrence Brain was at sea in Europe sometime later when he received the paper. He reportedly locked himself in the captain's quarters to fearfully read the article, afraid for the lives of his New York family. When he came to the end, he dashed off an angry letter to Connery, threatening to shoot him in the head the next time they crossed paths. T.B. Connery was anxious and upset. He'd never meant to fool anybody. He told the printing press to stop running extras in hopes of stemming the tide, and then he settled in, hoping that no one would accidentally shoot anyone or else have a heart attack or die of shock. In the end, no one did, and Connery was at least thankful for that. His publisher, James Gordon Bennett Jr., on the other hand, was not worried at all. He found the whole thing uproariously amusing and ultimately good for business. Clapping the distraught T.B. Connery on the back that morning, he told his editor, The fun of all this 
is my friends will never believe such a serious man as you originated the hoax. They'll all blame me for it. And so they did. In fact, even after the Harper's article, and even to this day, a good portion of the coverage of the hoax blames Bennett for it. That would be the end of the story, if not for a curious little curlicue that deserves addressing. If you've heard the story of the Great Zoo hoax before, it was probably in relation to the origins of the donkey and elephant mascots for the American Democratic and Republican parties, respectively. The story goes that the parties got their animal associations through a political cartoon drawn by Thomas Nast in, of all places, Harper's Weekly. In addition to being full of sensationalism and the occasional full-on hoax, the New York Herald was also a baldly partisan paper supporting the Democratic Party. At the time, the Democrats were pitching a fit because President Ulysses S. Grant was threatening to run for a third term. There was nothing in the Constitution precluding that, but ever since George Washington's farewell address, it was taken as an American tradition that presidents stepped down after two goes. As we talked about back in 1876, not the year 1876, the episode 1876 last year about the Hayes-Tilden election, Congress eventually passed a non-binding resolution calling the two-term tradition a bulwark against tyranny, which effectively cowed Grant from running again. Many of Grant's fellow Republicans joined in that vote. And that's just what Thomas Nast, a Republican working for the Republican Harper's Weekly, feared would happen. The Democrats had been accusing Grant of Caesarism, and Nast was afraid, rightly, as time would tell, that Republicans would be scared off by this criticism and trample over their own agenda in their panic. And that's where his political cartoon comes in. It was entitled The Third Term Panic and took place in a single panel set in the middle of Central Park among the stampeding animals. There's an ostrich representing temperance with its head in the sand, a giraffe and a unicorn standing in for the New York Tribune and the New York Times running away from frame, and then there's the elephant, named the Republican Vote, which is trampling over its own platform, reform, reconstruction, repudiation. All to get away from the animal at the center of the comic, a donkey dressed in a lion suit. The lion suit is named Caesarism, and the donkey is... No, not the Democrats, they're a fox or something. In the first go-around, the donkey, scaring away everyone else with its hoax threat, represents the New York Herald. So, obviously, Nast was satirizing both the state of current politics as well as the Herald's November 9th zoo hoax when he penned the third-term panic. Except that Harper's published the third-term panic on November 7th. Which means one of two things. Either Nast and Connery's zoo stories were totally coincidental, or else, less likely, but not impossible, the causation ran the other way. Connery's stampede hoax was inspired not by his visit to see the leopard, but by Nast's ribbing of his paper. Which would mean that even his confession, published in Nast's Harper Weekly 20 years later, was just another hoax on top of all the others. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, and Marcus Staub. 
Find us at constantpodcast.com, where you can then discover our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our store, which is currently featuring Don't Stop for Monkeys merch, in addition to its regular women riding naked Aristotles around. You can find Don't Stop for Monkeys at don'tstopformonkeys.weebly.com, or search it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Episodes begin dropping March 29th, so if you don't see it now, come back and check again. And do not worry, I will remind you. Thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters for making this show possible. If you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash theconstant now. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where Lincoln Park Zoo was the subject of a hoax breakout last summer on Twitter, complete with some very impressive photoshops, this has been The Constant. The ball hit the rhinoceros on the left shoulder, for he swerved over for an instant, but it can... Why don't we just get rid of this fucking useless glass clause? 19th century motherfucking newspaper writers, my god. (laughs) 